For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Monday, everyone, and welcome to Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating today or this week? It's my birthday week, and I am celebrating all this week with my favorites. I'd like to begin by one of my favorites who's not on the show today, but that's Dale Shores. I know he's watching. So, Dale, thank you for being here, and thank you for introducing me uh, to Tony Maeda, who was on the show just a few weeks ago, and he said that he would love to bring on the marble fawn himself, Jerry Torrey, and Jerry said yes. And that's what today is all about. So before we jump into that world, Tony, who or what are you celebrating today? Wow. Well, I want to celebrate you, first of all, because I didn't know it was your birthday week. Yes. Happy yes. birthday. Congratulations. That's that's wonderful. Thank you. I feel so honored that you had us on for your for your birthday week. For you're your celebration. So you are the you're you're my first big gift of the week. Ah, <laughs> that's you know what? I haven't heard that in a long time. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> You heard a lot today. I celebrate um, you. I celebrate my good friend Del Shores, who's watching, who 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 arranged this, and I'm really grateful uh, to for this whole experience. It's wonderful. It's really wonderful. Absolutely. Um, you know, I am so excited. Uh, you know, uh, I actually got to meet virtually uh, Jerry earlier today. What a great yes. guy. Let's start there. Um, and I know from reading the book, this book, by the way, everyone. Uh, which is available to everybody on Amazon or call your favorite bookseller. Yes, it's right there. Call your favorite bookseller and request it. And if it's not there, tell them they have to get this book. Uh, You can't put it down. Uh, And it's an easy read and you can read it. Uh, Dale said he read it in two days. I did the same thing. And then I went and listened to the audio after reading it. And what a great voice, uh, who is the voiceover actor that they used for that? That would be me. <laughs> of course it was. Um, Thank so, you. I appreciate that. That was a real, that was a joy to play Jerry after knowing Jerry all these years, to actually become Jerry. You know, I always felt like after talking with Jerry for so long, I always felt like I had been at Grey Gardens because I knew it so well. And then to actually become Jerry and Edie and Mrs. Beale and all the other characters was a real treat. So thank you for saying that. I'm proud of it. And I'm sure uh, you've been to Grey Gardens. Yes, 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 a couple times. Never inside, not not like Jerry. Um, but I have been. I've been to the mansion. I've been on the grounds. Uh, yeah, before this last renovation, I was there. So it was still gorgeous. Didn't look I've at all like I and I've walked, I've walked there from the beach because mm-hmm. it's so close to the beach. Uh, but when did you first become aware of Grey Gardens? Wow. And what was the impact that it had on you the first time that you experienced it? Well, you know, it's funny because um, I say this, I say this in the book, um, you know, I'm film buff, film historian, if you will, uh, film buff, write about film, interview people about film. And I was in a video store. I think it was like in 2002 or 2003. So, you know, 20 years ago. And I was just looking for something interesting and intriguing to watch. And at this time I was really, I was really fascinated with documentaries. And um, so the video person, the person at the video store said to me, have you ever seen the film Grey Gardens? And I went, no, I don't know anything about that. And he went over to the shelf and he grabbed a copy of it and he put it in my hands. And he said, once you meet little Edie, your life will never be the same. And boy, you know, truer words never spoken. I mean, I watched it. I was every possible emotion. I was, I was blown away. I was horrified. I was elated. I was enchanted, mostly. And I couldn't get out of my head. And every time I would meet somebody, I kind of use it as a litmus test. Like, have you seen Grey Gardens? You have to see Grey Gardens. Or I'd watch Grey Gardens with them. And then just about at that time, as this, as this film was just you know, saturating my life, suddenly there was a sequel. The Beals of Grey Gardens, you know, like 40 years later, and then a Broadway musical. And I'm like, this is in the zeitgeist. Um, And it's just always spoken to me 
on so many levels, the film is about, you know, these two women who, yes, are very iconoclastic, obviously, but it's about, uh, Albert Maisel's wife said to me, uh, and I'll never forget this because I think she, she pinpointed it. You know, they couldn't become the artists that they longed to be. So they made their lives their art. What a great statement. Isn't that amazing? And it just pinpoints exactly. It's the artistic impulse. It's You can't suppress it. It will come out. And so since they couldn't express it the way we conventionally express our art, they made their lives their art. They made their clothes their art, their home their art. Um, it's. I just think it's, it's on so many levels it touches me. And I know it touches, obviously, I mean, millions of people out there. It's 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 just an iconic uh, piece of work. Yeah. Uh, now, interestingly enough, I also discovered it late. Uh, the documentary came out I, in 1975, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So, and I discovered it until much later. I had friends that lived in the Hamptons. I was visiting them. And we were just doing a drive-by one day, and uh, that sounds terrible. We were driving around the neighborhood, and they pointed out this house, and they said, have you ever seen the documentary Grey Gardens? Mm. And I had never seen it. And so they went out, and we rented the film. Remember those days where you had yeah. to rent films? Mm -hmm. So we went out. We rented the film that night. We watched it. And you said exactly what I was experiencing, every emotion known to man. Uh, I experienced watching this film. Mm -hmm. um, why is it that you think, number one, uh, you're a great uh, historian and uh, everyone check out uh, Tony's uh, website as well. Uh, but you said, I mean, you discovered it later on, mm -hmm. uh, at, long after uh, it had, you know, hit uh, the shelves and everything. Same thing with me. Um, why do you think it took so long to get to us, number one? And number two, once it gets to you, it never leaves you. Yeah, it doesn't. Well, the main reason that it takes took so long was because of home video. I mean, you know, in the 70s and 80s, a documentary in particular, once it played, it was gone. You know, and we say in the book, uh, you know, the thing that really kept Greg Gardens even remotely alive in the days before home video were gay men. And their love and their just their obsession with Lily Edie and Big Edie. So that it kind of had a, a, a low level life then. But home video is what did it. Uh, Criterion put out the disc and suddenly it exploded because people actually now had access to it. Mm -hmm. You know, Jerry talks about in the book about driving by art houses, art theaters and seeing it. But that's the big cities. I mean, that's in New York. That's in Los Angeles. You know, in between, people don't really get to see it. Um, so I think home video is the big thing. The big thing is she it just caught the zeitgeist at the right time, and it's available for anybody now. Um, and I, it stays with. It was the second one was why do you think it, why do I think it stays with people? Yes. Um, like with you and me, these women, they're incredibly unique, but they're universal. They're they're. I mean, there's so many reasons they, they're looking for, they, along with Jerry, and I always think about this with Jerry, Jerry's looking for a, a family. You know, it's not the family you're born with, it's the family you create. These women are such iconoclasts. They're living in squalor, yet they speak like they're Tennessee Williams characters. I mean, they are the dichotomy of, of living the way they do and behaving, you know, as if they're at Versailles is fascinating to people. And you wonder, do you not see that cat going to the bathroom behind your point? And they're fine with it. That They're fine with that, you know. But, you know, pick up the wrong fork and it's a total, you know, you'll go crazy. Um, it's obviously the Jackie, the Kennedy thing. I mean, when I when you first hear Edie speak, you're like, where have I heard that voice before? I know, it's amazing. Yeah, it is. It is. And you realize, oh, my God. And not only that, that she was actually the golden child. I mean, Jackie was was not Jackie was behind her. She was Edie was the, the, the real golden child of that generation of that family. And then through circumstances, which we obviously talk about in the book and which pe most people know about through the musical or the film, you know, she got her dreams got thwarted and she ends up you know, living for 30 years with her mother in this mansion that's falling apart while Jackie, you know, becomes Jackie Kennedy. 
And uh, there's a lot of animosity there. So I think that's the fascination of their lineage, the fascination of their living conditions, and yet the fact that they still behave as if, you know, they're aristocrats. Um, it's just all so fascinating and sad and, but it doesn't get them down. That's the thing. It's it, the human spirit, you know, it's, it's making your life, your art, but it's the indomitability of the human spirit. You know, Jerry yeah, talks about the say that one of the things that really jumps out at me reading the book uh, and listening to it as well is the fact that um, the choices that we make uh, throughout life, not only their choices, but the choices that Jerry made. Mm -hmm. uh, and you open, and I'm going to jump right into that as soon as we bring Jerry on in just a moment. Sure. Um, I love the way the book opens. Oh, uh, because it doesn't open at Grey Gardens, mm -hmm. but as a look back. And uh, and looking at your own history, and I know that because you and I talked about this the last time you were on the show, is your arriving in Hollywood, mm -hmm. very much like my arrival in New York, what drew both of us to this business is the past. Mm -hmm. And yet we have spent our lives bringing the past into the present. Mm -hmm. And you do that brilliantly with this book. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I had an amazing partner. I mean, it's, it's, it's his life. And as I said to you the last time, when we started working on this, I mean, one story after the other was just more incredible. And I was just like, I can't believe, I mean, the film, you know, the film is is this small glimpse, but Jerry's life and everything he experienced behind the scenes before the Maisels got there. I always like to say, you know, so much happened before the cameras showed up, you know, and it's so true. And so much happened afterwards with this life and this incredible guy who I was so fortunate enough to to meet and become partners with in this book and and just, you know, the best of friends in life, as you know, he, as you'll see, too everybody. He's the most wonderful, kind, caring, the sweetest guy. The sweetest Definitely. guy. I'm going to bring him on. Uh, I want to say very quickly is, you know, I have had the good fortune, as you has, have as well, um, many iconic people in the business that have become friends of ours. Mm -hmm. And when people see them from a distance, they think of them only as characters. Uh, Carol Channing, was a very dear friend of mine. Mm -hmm. People think of her as that character. They don't see the person that was behind this. And what we get to see through this book, through Jerry's eyes, uh, is the fact that these were not just characters. Mm -hmm. These were two brilliant women. And I'm going to bring Jerry on on that note. Love and there he is, everyone. There he is. Yes, Jerry. Hi. Hello, and welcome to the show. Hi. Hello, everyone. Hi, Tony. Hey, Richie. Good. I am so thrilled that you said yes uh, to doing this. And I want to begin by the first pages of the book. Uh, when you uh, tell us a little bit, Tony and I spoke about this the last time, but I want to hear in your own words how you and Tony met. Oh, both. My favorite place, one of them, the Metropolitan Museum. Of art, this place. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I frequented and have for years. Tony and I were there. He and I didn't know each other. There was a there's a film studio there where they play movies. And Albert was there and they showed Mrs. Bill and Edie's film Great Gardens. I, I knew they were showing it because Al invited me. And Tony was in the audience with a friend of his. And well, that's how we met during the movie. And then, of course, after the movie, we had a powwow and it was great. And he and I decided that it would be worth looking into writing a book about Mrs. Bill and Edie. But he's the backbone, the knowledgeable one with grammar and the, every, everything that comes to writing a book perfectly is he. Yay. <laughs> Well, you also have reached this legendary status. I mean, as you walk on, uh, vegan chef Chris Tucker says the one and only Marble Fawn, and you are the one and only Marble Fawn. You've reached this legendary status. Um, as I said earlier, I love the way that the book opens with you as a cab driver in New York having a chance encounter Although I don't believe that there are chance encounters. I believe yeah. that everything happens 
as it's meant to be. Uh, this woman gets in your car. Correct. And simply because she has the camera equipment, you start <laughs> a conversation going in that direction. If you want to bring our listeners to that, and oh, we're just going to give teasers so you buy the book. Oh, you see. Oh, <laughs> the first thing, I, I don't remember her name. She remembers mine pretty sure now. We Ninth uh, Avenue, West Forty Third Street. Lights red, drizzling, slow night. Theater just emptied. Light turns green. I pull over to the curb, and she has a tripod and a camera. And a, I, I liked my job, so I had no problem getting out in the rain, helping the lady with her camera. And I put the camera in the back seat and the tripod in the trunk. Open the door. She sat down. And the chatterbox, who you may learn to understand, he, me, began a rapport with this lady. It always started with, you know, I wanted to see how, if the person in my back of my cab is out of their mind or not, if I could trust them or not, whether route. I got to see how to check in. Let me check in on this customer. You know, some kind of connection. And I did. And I said, I see that you have a camera and that you're interested, obviously, in film. And she said, yes. And Light turned green and then red again. And I said, well, have you ever heard of a film named Grey Gardens? And she said, yes, silently. She moved forward for the petition. And uh, I said to the lady, I said, well, I'm the guy from the movie, you know, Jerry, from the movie. She, I don't know if she'd understand what I was telling her. And she stopped and paused and said, looked at my license in the window. And she said, wow, you are Jerry. And I said, yes, it's my name. It's on the license. And uh, we, she began, and a moment later, she started talking. I think she was a little bit taken back because she said that Albert and David were told that I had passed away. And that was very intricate and very first time and very personal. I said, obviously, I'm not. I'm here. And uh, we began our route uh, to the village. And she told me to contact Albert who had been working with the lady, the woman, the customer, uh, charcoal briquette commercials and, you know, advertising, barbecuing goods from charcoal briquette. She was a doll. She gave me Al's number. I called. Next day, I went up to Maisel's, 8th Avenue and West 54th Street. I, don't, I turned the corner. Richard, there's a crew of people on the curb and trucks parked everywhere. What else is new? And they took up all the parking spots in the cab street. Only cabs can park there and postal service trucks. I was there in my cab and I couldn't park it. I said, oh, pain in the asses. I can't park to see Albert. But I went further down the street. Studio 54 is on that street. And uh, there I see Albert looking in over the cab hood. And I recognized him, his eyes, his eyes, and his hair was gray and silver. And I'm not sure I to tell you that it was, it was. And uh, Albert was, and I locked eyes and we braced and I got out of the cab, I left the car running. It was Richard Tony, this was 1975 to 2006 had passed. I didn't know who was who and who was alive, but Albert was there. And he and I shared Mrs. Bill and Edie magic like no one else knew so our relationship began okay can i leave now <laughs> like, no, no, well no we've got uh, a few more questions <laughs> uh but he also wrote the forward to the book oh he did uh, tony has the knowledge of and putting together an outline i didn't know how to begin preparing such a book i knew i had wanted to write a book all my life because in fact I do believe, and I thought to myself for the years, that not only is my story worth reading because it it might give light to those who are homeless or those who are in trouble with their family, maybe a father or mother mistreats their children or someone who gets uh, screwed up with drugs and stuff. Maybe if they read this book, they can see that everybody's going to drown. They can make it, you know? Mm. And I wanted to share that. But also, Richard, Tony... I had experienced things that I could only have prayed for, and they came to fruition, like visiting the pyramids and working in Saudi Arabia for King Fazl and his father, the, you know, the big shot Fad. And I had a great job, but the things I experienced 
no one would understand if I didn't write them down. And uh, I wanted to share them. I thought they were magical. And uh, it seemed boiling over in my consciousness for years. You see this room I'm in? I'd come home from work, driving my cab, and I'd lie awake and look at that ceiling on the fan and say, how on earth can I explain all the things I want to to people? I have to have a professional help me put this into categories and so on. Tony shows up at the Met 48 years later. So that's how that <laughs> happens. And uh, I, I think my life is worth hearing about. Everyone's life is worth knowing. We all have a voice. But if you get through the tide and you get to the shore, maybe someone could benefit from that helping them understand how to do it. You know? Yeah. Well, and yeah. we were saying before, Jerry's life is so much more than just Great Gardens. Oh. I mean, the life is, a, it's, 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 I find it so, his story, when he would tell me a story, I'm like, this is so universal. This is, again, the family you create as opposed to the one that you were born with. Amen. You know, reclaiming your identity, who you are, accepting yourself, finding a home, looking Amen. for love. I mean, it's so universal. And we were, thank you for mentioning about Albert writing the intro. We were so fortunate to have Albert do that for us. And strictly because he loved Jerry. I mean, he adored Jerry. To see them together was was truly heartwarming. And we were so grateful because, you know, Albert passed away not long after that. So I'm so grateful Amen. to have kind of his blessing with the book that meant so much to, to both of us. Amen. And then we were very fortunate. Very yes, fortunate. that is. Well, when you talk about the family that we create, yes, thank you, Tony. Uh, when we talk about the uh, families that we create, um, beyond uh, the uh, the Beals, uh, the Maisels are very much a part of this story. Mm -hmm. uh, and the fact that what I want to go is I want to go a little further back because Tony is absolutely right. There's more to your story than Grey Gardens. Um, you are very forthcoming and honest about what your childhood was like, um, about how you ended up at Grey Gardens. Uh, what was the process for both of you in terms of what you choose to tell and what you choose not to tell? Because uh, I applaud your honesty in the book. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? He's he's so brave in some of the things um, he tells you. You're asking me that question? Both of you, either of uh, Tony, would you like to answer? Well, I just, I, all I want to say is, is that Jerry's bravery is astounding to me. I was always, I was always blown away by it. And we always had, we had very specific talks about if you don't feel comfortable talking about this, we won't put it in. You know, this is, and Jerry was always, no, this is important. This is what happened. This is what happened. And always, always so honest. And it's just part of who Jerry is. You know, Jerry can't lie. Jerry can't not be. Jerry, no. <laughs> you know, and uh, there's a certain amount of bravery in that. I mean, look at his life, you know, and he's a brave man. He says, yes, as Albert said in our introduction, Jerry says yes to everything. That's all these amazing things have happened to him. But uh, mm -hmm. that's what I have to say about it, Jerry. I know that you, you know, what do you, I mean, it's because of your bravery. Well, there's no other way for me to communicate from, except right from the point of the bat hitting the ball. I mean, what else is there? to do besides tell what's on your mind and in your heart. So I, I do that. I don't filter it. Although I think I should sometimes, especially, <laughs> you know, if I get into It's too late now, Jerry. <laughs> no, I mean, some of the exploits in the bathhouses, we don't want to talk about that. You'll get censored, thrown off. <laughs> you can't go there. But oh, I mean, we'll, uh, we'll do a show called the 11 o'clock hour. <laughs> there you go. Oh. The so city was once, anyway. It wasn't sterilized like it is now. We can't get to that portion right now. No. But um, the reason I am myself is really because of my mother. And my mother was always like, well, I'll tell you what. I once said to my mother, uh, her, my father's very heavy-handed and it was difficult, and that's a problem. And I said to her one day, I said, Mom, why did you marry this man? She said, Jerry, I married, if you'd have seen him on Coney Island Beach, you would have married him too. He was there. <laughs> that's, the, that's where my personality started from. My mom was as candid as the sunset, you know? And she was a very real. People loved her. But she always would tell me the truth and say, if I was honest with my landlord or something, 
she said, Jerry, do you really want to do that? And I said, no, I don't really want to do that. Even if it was uh, stopping a check for $5 and something irrelevant, very petty. The point is, is that I was very, she was very candid with me. And once, well, if you'd known her, you'd understood where my personality gravitated from, you know, uh, being honest is what's the point of being anything else? I agree. Uh, and it's great that you live your authentic self. It's important. Yeah. Yes. Um, you mentioned the book that uh, going to the World's Fair and then yes. going in and seeing this incredible art e exhibit, yeah. uh, that that really was almost as if, you know, a light bulb went off inside of you. And oh. that's where your art, love of art began. It did. May I elaborate on that? Oh, absolutely. Please. It was, um, it was childhood memory. We'll make it quick because there was some that were not so nice. Um, my father, my uncles would take me from my parents' house during the summer. I had an uncle named Frederick, and he was a mason and a farmer. He could do anything. He was very skilled. Then he'd build mausoleums and tombstones carved. He would take me on a Friday night to his house in Long Island that he was building in Holbrook from cobblestones that he would steal from the streets of Brooklyn when they were renovating the streets and putting in new gas and sewer lights. He would, of course, help himself to great material. And it wasn't a lot, but it was enough that on a Saturday morning, those cobblestones I'm on a pail with a rusty hammer and chisel and removing the tar so they're applicable and I can put them into the building itself. He could cement them so they'd stick. My job was to remove any tar, roots, any imperfections. I hated it, but I got out of the city. And I also loved the country. So there were rabbits and nature and I fell in love with parts of it I never knew existed. You know, I'll tell you, Richard, it was... Those stones and this experience in 1963 with my dear mother, Helen, they were on the rampart passing the Pieta, Michelangelo's Pieta in the Vatican Pavilion. And my mother's holding my hand and I don't remember what I was doing except staring. And she clenched it tightly. She often did that to protect me or to make me aware of something around us that was unusual. So she clenched my fingers and and we passed the Pieta, and she said, this is the mother of Jesus with her son. And I said, well, I knew enough about Catholic religion to not want to talk about it anymore. But she, you know, we were instilled in this. But the point is, when I looked up at the Pieta, I said, is that the same material stone that he used material that Uncle Freddie is teaching me to clean for the house? Yes. And I, from that moment, it was more than a lightning rod. It was like, I know this stone. You could take a piece of marble, granite, hit it with a hammer, the chisel will fly out of your hand. That kind of material is impossible, nearly. He carved it with splendor and grace, and it always impressed me. Such a beautiful masterpiece could be carved, no less 18 tons of it, and be so finite and tender and beautiful, all from his faith in Jesus and the doctrine of our Christ, our Lord. All of that, Richard, this took me to a finer place, to a real place where stone became my calling. And if you don't, if you looked at my garden, you'd see it calling. It's all calling. It's out and there. Everybody, go to the Instagram page oh. because all your current work is there as well. So yeah, it's, I love stone work. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's great. Um, I, I want to bring up, uh, you know, I, I pulled this photograph. Uh, here you are. Uh, oh. you know, here you are. Uh, and Jerry, you haven't changed a bit. Oh, really? <laughs> no, you look the same. I still have that hat. <laughs> so, that's why I, I have to laugh when people would say, I mean, there were, you know, people are going to say what they say online, but a couple oh, people disparage that this is really Jerry. I'm like, really? He looks exactly the same. He, he the sounds same. exactly the same. How can you not that was 17 how can you know years. this is not Jerry from Grey Gardens? I mean, look at him. He looks exactly, right. he exactly the same. I didn't yeah. think of that. Well, yeah, I want you to take us to uh, and again, everybody, this is all mm -hmm. in the book. You gotta read the book. But oh. if you can take us to that first day that you and little Edie met for the first time. Mm. 
magic forever. I uh, had, well, trespass is the word. I was trespassing. And I went up into the front. There were three steps. They were made of red brick. I walked one, two, three. And now I'm on the front porch. And I almost backed off because I was, didn't want to get arrested for trespassing. Obviously, no one had been there. Maybe a bird on the banister. I was the only person there. So I, I, I said, hey, okay. Excuse me for interrupting, but when you first see this, um, we've all seen the uh, mansion in the film. Yeah. Uh, when you first arrive there, yes. do you feel that you are approaching an abandoned house? Um, yes. The first day, I, I was sure it was abandoned because the Cadillac in the driveway was rusting into the ground. And trend. There was no light on because they first seen it in the day when Edie nor Mrs. Beale would light a lamp. So there was no current being displaced. They didn't see any electric light bulbs. So therefore, so this is an abandoned big old house. I didn't know anybody was in there that afternoon, that first time visiting. I found that out later when I returned on my bicycle. It, that morning I went up to the front porch again and I walked up to the front door, you know? Should I tell you how that occurred? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I see. Good. I go past the porch. The, the wainscoting is collapsing from above. It's it's in poor shape. The porch moves. And I go up to the diamond-shaped windows, the side of the main door, the Dutch door. Although we never opened it, it was the two doors at one. And uh, I, I breathed some breath onto the glass and I, I cleaned it like you might your glasses, your eyeglasses. Mm -hmm. So I did that. And, and then I cleaned it with my palm, my hand. And I looked into the vestibule, Richard Tony, and it was a draped with cobwebs. It looked like it looked like snow falling. It was just draped down and about. The banister was covered. The banister to the table in the in the vestibule, to the portions of the door jams were just clung to and draped with cobwebs. I mean, it was hard to identify them at first because they did look like curtains. But after I noticed those, and stepped, I kept studying them. I did. I said, okay. I knocked out of the window pane and quick fast. These little white shoes went right underneath the banister, which was white, and their little shoes went across and interrupted by the post and then continued. And then quickly, I see those ladies' legs and she's wearing uh, she's wearing a shower curtain with peacocks and those they call those little insects that nobody likes but they like drawing them little insects they have ladybugs and stuff she's wearing this garment and she descends further but through the corridor there's a staircase right and it's covered in the cobwebs made for a tunnel in which she would weave her way to the front door through this maze of tunnels of cobwebs. And I just was ba baffled. Of, I'm still baffled 50 years later. So glad I have that image in my mind and heart. She opens the door and opens the screen door, and Richard, the smell of that mansion nearly had me running away because it was very powerful. Boom, it's sort of like, well, rotten wood and cat urine. Yeah. You know, that stuff and stuff. But she opened the screen door then, unlatched, she opened it, and put her hand out, touched the side of my, I had long hair. I'm still here, but not as long. Anyway, who cares? It, she touched the side of my hair, and uh, Mother, the marble fawn is here. And I looked in disbelief at this woman in this, and she had a, like a sweatshirt wrapped around her from an apron from a, a, a kitchen of some kind. And I just looked at her disbelief that she didn't ask me to leave the property. It was Edie Beal. I didn't know her name. She said, I said, I'm here to help. I still get nervous talking about it because I said, you know, I'm here to help you. If you need any help with the property, I don't want any money. I'll help you. It just... As long as you don't throw me off the front porch, I'm so curious. That would be fine with me, just to be paid for my curiosity. She said, yes, I come back in the morning, we'll meet mother. And I, I was so relieved that she agreed to have me as a guest the following morning that I just backed up 
you know, I didn't turn my back to her. I didn't want to insult her. And I backed off down the steps and crept, <laughs> crept away. And that was our first meeting, EDB. Well, you know, and it's interesting because I, I'm feeling, you know, hearing you tell this uh, story, and I'm sure you feel the same way, Tony, hearing it the first time, oh. of all of these emotions coming through you. Yeah. Uh, because I imagine these two women living in this house that's literally falling apart around them yep. uh, and getting used to, if one can get actually get used to, those smells yep. uh, in that house, that you also were an anomaly to them because I'm assuming that they did not have guests that just came and visited them. Uh, explain anomaly to me. Well, you were unique. You were, you were, they didn't have a lot of guests before. I don't know. Oh, it sounds like something you eat from the sea. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> With the Ketchum of California. Well, that's, yeah, you know, that's so, that's so true, Richard. Oh, you bring up, you bring up an important point, you know, and Edie says it in the movie, you know, having this, first of all, he's 17. Yes. And he's adorable. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you're there, you have, all you have is your mother, <laughs> you know, your 75 year old mother and you for years. And suddenly this young, adorable, healthy young boy shows up and says, I want to help you. I mean, can you imagine what that through that household in the chaos? And that's, it's so, you know, that the whole push and pull between Mrs. Beale and Edie and Jerry and that whole kind of jealousies and and frustrations that Edie felt with Jerry and the things that she would do and how she would somehow act out I think is all part of that um fact that they they only had each other for so long and suddenly yes. here's Jerry and then suddenly here are cameras you know I mean it was it was amazing I want to ask that's why that's why I'm so glad you and I met because you understood what I didn't you know through the book Somehow. Amazing. And it's great to have those outside eyes as well. Yeah. Tony saw what I didn't up till the time we began writing the book. Okay. Yeah. I mean, does one get used to the uh, the smells and everything being a bad environment? Um, you can be very frank with me. No, you don't get used to them. You become accustomed to them. They occasionally, depending on well, rainy day or not, if it rained or it was foggy, you did not get used to the house. Mm. But if it was a dry summer day and you could manage to open the door or two windows or so and get fresh air in to the hallways and the corridors, it would be very tolerable. Mm. Peculiar, this may sound, but who isn't and who doesn't have peculiarities? Mrs. Beale during the film said, well, I, I, I just love that smell. I, I, I bet it's something she actually physically enjoyed. And somehow I understood what she was talking about. Maybe it was the presence, or I'm not sure. I did it because idiosyncrasy that may have been a touch of um, a disorder upstairs of some kind. I, I didn't question that. I think she was protected there, or that if yeah. something, you know, if something that strong, uh, I, I believe that they put this, you know, almost like a cocoon around themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, and the presence. And you infiltrated that. You you yeah. actually jumped into that, which was something that they probably, uh, well, they obviously they were not expecting it. And, no. and you changed their life. I mean, I think of you being that moment in The Wizard of Oz where everything goes from black and white to technicolor. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's what you that need in their lives. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Richard, can I make a point? You may not have understood. Maybe you have. Quickly, I'll be quiet. It was one morning, Mrs. Bill was cooking. I was coming upstairs. I don't know why. I was cranky. But I went upstairs, and Mrs. Bill was cooking on the mattress. And uh, she was, I forget, I think it was oatmeal. And she's making oatmeal, steaming along, and she takes this fork, I don't know what that was, and tries to put the sterno out on the bed, which is boiling, which I thought was oatmeal, but now I'm not sure. It <laughs> spills onto the mattress from this little red sterno contraption, and the flames flipped over and it went about the mattress, newspapers, cattails, 
tissue boxes, everything, little stuff. And the flame, I, I was like waking up, and again, I wasn't in a great mood. And I looked, and the flame just went through the box of matches and through there. I said, holy Christmas. I don't want to curse. It's a professional situation. <laughs> you know, I said, yeah, this flame, I, I put it out. I didn't think of anything else but to put the flame out. And uh, I did. And then I, Mrs. Edie was over there fiddling with something in her shoe. She loved doing that. And Mrs. Bill was, well, she, the light was on, but nobody was home, if you know what I mean. And the flames are just getting, putting them my way out. Literally saved that house many times. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I got worked up and said, Mrs. Bill, may I say, can I question you? Whenever you light something you cook on the stove here or the mattress, Alert me. I'll come up. I love your cooking. I'll have something to eat with you. But don't light the stereo. I didn't say it that way. Please call me. I can dine with you and not have to go to the fire department in an ambulance with you. Period. I knew that was dangerous. So that was where the corn and the cob and all the rest of our meals uh, began. Well, you've been immortalized in song. <laughs> and you know, Scott... I'm sorry I'm talking so much. No, this is what it's about. Keep talking. Green tea. Green tea. Very good, actually. Makes me hyper. Anyway, Scott <laughs> Frankel took a minute of a film. He took a film, maybe 90 seconds of a little film. But Mrs. Bill and I are sharing lunch corn on the cob. And he was so brilliant. He took that and turned it into a melody. If I might say, yeah. I'm very fond of that melody. And if I sing it on the subway, everyone's about to run away from me, so I'm singing. <laughs> Jerry, I would give anything to hear you sing it. Oh, I wouldn't sing it now because I, I just don't have a turn. But, I, sing it. <laughs> but I, I sing it because it's a charmer. And Scott took that song yeah, and turned it into something I am very touched by. He did a beautiful job with that. You know? Yeah. Look how he charms down to my corn. Isn't yeah. he a treasure? <laughs> More corn? No, anyway. No, he he was a he's a genius. I, I really yeah, and the brilliance about that is that they distilled their Mrs. Beale and Jerry's relationship into a song, and you got the jealousies, you got the warmth, you got the fact that they were mother and son, and and, and Edie's in there too, and that's what's so brilliant about that that score that Scott and Doug wrote, which is just wonderful. What is um, you get they condensed those. And in the oh. book, when we talk about the jealousies and the uh, competing for Jerry's attention or for their mother's attention, it's 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 distilled in that. So that's such a wonderful song. And, and how brilliant to filter, if I may say it that way, to come across with a, photographs like an image and then to portray it in, a, in music and lyrics. Mm -hmm. And it'd be so tender. Well, to me, it is. So no, it's very, a wonderful moment. Thank you, Scott. Very nice. No. <laughs> Um, when, you know, we all meet people in our lives and, you know, some people you have that first encounter of meeting someone and like with both of you, where something clicks and a relationship forms. Right. Mm -hmm. Meeting little, uh, you know, Edie uh, for the first time. And it wasn't just a, a chance encounter. It became this lifelong relationship. Uh, what was that? What do you think was the defining moment that solidified your friendship? With Edie and Mrs. Beale? Yeah. Yes. The raid, the raid on the mansion that summer day. I was on the lawnmower at Mr. Getty's property. Fire truck came down Lily Pond Lane and an EMT and another unmarked vehicle. And the whizzing of the wheels is summer. You don't see a fire truck and all this activity on Lily Pond Lane. You see stretch limousines and Bentleys and everything, gardening trucks. So I knew they were going and I know where they were going. And I jumped on my bike, followed the fire truck and the other cars. They have already been at the mansion. They, I don't want to curse. I'll be very careful here. Uh, I took the fire whatever you can say whatever you want. No, gate sensor. No, anyway. They took the fire hose off the truck and unrolled it, put the pressure on. And now they have poor Edie buffaloed her at the screen door. They put their foot in the door 
and now the fire hose is an obstacle to closing the door, and they're in the vestibule, and the people took the hose or were hosing down the vestibule and the ceiling of the vestibule, and the second floor and its ceilings plaster, and a portion of the library, a portion of the living room. Richard, the ceilings are now saturated with water, although they already were wet from rain, and they began to collapse onto the floor below, uh, the, the vestibule floor, and some, the library floor. And then they hosed the library floor, plaster boards, plaster boards. They used to float the plaster in those years. And, and then it would rumble into a pile of plaster wet boards and push it all the way to the end of the room or into the center, causing this white stuff, look like ocean mist, it further damaging the interior. Uh-huh. But now they're inside, and the hose is there, and it's really on full force. And this woman with a folding wheelchair shows up. I didn't like her. She didn't care for my attitude either. I'm being polite with her. And we, she went upstairs with a folding chair. It was a wheelchair. And God Almighty bless Mrs. Beal for holding on. She's holding on to her little headboard. The headboard is little spires of little spigots like a leg of a chair with very fine wood-carved headboard on maybe six spokes. And she's holding on with all her might. And I look and he's unfolding the chair. And I said, what the are you doing? Yeah, I cursed. I never cursed before or after that in Mrs. Beale's presence ever. And I said that word. And uh, she said, well, who are you? And I said, well, I'm me. I'm Jerry. Big deal. And I said, what are you doing? You're scaring the shit out of this woman. I used that word. Mm. And uh, he said, well, she can't stay here. The house is uninhabitable. Can you see all this and that? And I said, yeah, I know it's here. But you can't scare her. That You're going to give her a heart attack, Christ's sake. Mm. Well, who's going to clean this up? And Edie was, Edie was not really doing well. Edie was freaked out of her mind. She was running around with the phone, trying to dial a number. She couldn't think of it. I said, I'll do it. Just split. Frankly, that's what I said. And uh, I just put my scrabble my name on a piece of paper. Edie did formally sign the paper. A lawyer, somebody from the fire department. Then the Board of Health were there, town of Brookhaven. I remember the letters stamped on the paper. And they left. They were such wise guys. The fire boys would take during the raid after they do the renovation. They took little snot noses. They take the cigarettes, put them out on the floor in the mansion, and I'd say, "This is somebody's house, pal. You can't put the cigarette butts out, even though it doesn't look like much to you. It's someone's home. Did somebody come to your kitchen and put the cigarette butts out on your floor or your vestibule?" So I made my presence known, and they did not appreciate that. And I'm not going to ramble on here, but I'm telling you. They cooled their jets that day, and that's where we bonded. Mrs. Yeah. Beale and Edie upstairs in the bedroom. I said, okay, Mrs. Beale, I'm not leaving you, but we have to get this a little together. We have to start to figure out what we're going to do because they're going to put you in the booby hatch if you don't, period. And she knew that language, and I knew how to say it. We started cleaning the mansion. Last but not least, I swear... Richard, Tony, I looked around and I remember that moment. I said, "How? what did I get myself into? <laughs> what am I going to start cleaning this? Yeah, you know, that's so funny. What he's saying is because I think people don't realize that the movie, the house that you see in the film, Craig Gardens, is the cleaned up version. I mean, we look at, we look at the house in, in the movie and we're like, oh, my God, how can people live like this? No, that's what was acceptable. Right. Jerry calls the house uh, after the raid, which is the Board of Health raiding the house. Jerry calls the house before the raid vintage Grey Gardens. And right. that's what our book talks a lot about. Right. And then the raid happens and the house gets cleaned up. Right. And then the Maisels come and the film starts. So it's just to think about what we see is actually the cleaned up version is is astounding. It is astounding. Uh, I, you know, but, but we're going to run out of time, and I, I could go on for hours with both of you. But, Jerry, I want to ask you if you can take us to 
the first introduction to the Maisels and what the overall feeling was, it, it's, I get this real strong, I get emotional even hearing you tell this story now because I get such a feeling that God bless you oh. as a protector of these two women. If you had not been there, I don't think they would have had the wherewithal to know what to do if no. you had not been there. And you, and let's stress oh, yeah. this again, 16, 17 years old, yeah. having the wherewithal to take care of these two women. It was not easy. When, where, and how did the Maisels come on board? It, Albert and David Maisel show up with this woman called Lee, and it was way back early, late 70s. And Lee was, I didn't know who she relate with. Lee Radswell. I didn't even care. I found out later. Big deal. I knew her sister was somewhere around, but I wasn't even sure of that. So Lee came by with Peter Beard and Albert and David. But Albert's film crew, and they were wise to do this. We dropped them off where Brooks would cut the lawnmower, cut the lawnmower to cut a path to get the equipment onto the front porch to do the filming. This was the first introduction to any idea of a film. Lee had mentioned to Dear Edie, not to me, that they wanted to do a movie film about Lee's childhood as a bouvier in the country, in the Hamptons. And Mrs. Beale, with a very uh, unusual way of speaking, would narrate it. And they went into the back garden and had a powwow about how to orchestrate this film, which they collected footage for, for about four days. But that's how I met Albert and David. And Lee, I found out later who she was. She was pleasant. Um, I offered to make Lee gin gimlets. On, we drank gin gimlets. I didn't like it, but I drank it. If you lived there, you would drink it too. So I, I mixed the, the tumblers with the beef feeders gin, rose lime juice, no ice. On the little table on the front porch, I offered Lee Jen Gimblet. She declined. She wasn't disparaging about it, but she was not going to drink the Jen Gimblet I made for her. We laughed about it 50 years later at the opening wow. night of the Great Gardens and Musical. She remembered that. Anyway, a film is shelved, and Edie and Lee had a big dust up. Dust up, meaning disagreement. I don't know who I, I don't know where that word comes from. Some sailors to go out with use the term in fight. Anyway, it was a cowboy. I think either of them. Or both. <laughs> yeah. Yep, they were hot. Back to the back, come back down. Dust up. They had a fight in the library over a rattan chair that Lee wanted to do something with it. He didn't want moved, and they got heated. And uh, well, that was the end of the film. They shelved it. Albert and David, I didn't know much of them until they called back maybe two weeks, no, two months later. Then they called and I said, Hi, are you the guy who was here? Um, are you ever going to pay for the groceries you said you were going to pay for? And all this. I mean, it. I told them. And he eventually did. Newtown Grocer. Anyway, I said, Al, what you, what's up? And he said, we're looking to make another film about the ladies. And I said, you want to make a film about Mrs. Beale and Edie? And I swear, Mrs. Beale's on the bed. I'm sitting on the aluminum. I had an iron lawn chair I sat on. It was dependable and sturdy. I kept it there. I sat on it and said, Mrs. Beale, those two young guys, they look like they're from New York University film studio or something. And they want to make a film about you and your daughter, Edie. And she looked at me and she said, well, I said, maybe we can make some money. I said that to her. Maybe we can make some money. We could use a loaf of bread. <laughs> there mm. it is. Um, and she agreed. They came back and uh, the film began, Grey Gardens, unnamed. And so the film began. I can tell you a history of that film. It's really cool. But you don't have time. 
Well, yeah. you can, they can read it in the book, Jerry. Oh, yes, they can read it in the book. That's um, why I wrote the book. Don't or listen to it. Yes. Right, Tony's the best. I'm it's sorry. It's all in the book, and it is incredible. And Francis is asking if I can do another hour in the future. You're both welcome here in your time. Oh, yeah. We want to let you both know that there's going to be a part two. And I oh. think Jerry said he's going to try to join me on Wednesday night. Oh. Tony, if you're available, come and join us. Uh, because there's going to be a production. It's a one-night-only concert. Uh, the uh, uh, the creative team behind this, they are joining us as well. Let me remove uh, this uh, the book cover for a moment here. Um, but with Eileen Barnett, Trisha Rapier, wow. um, I have a little uh, promo uh, that I want to show all of you, and we're going to wrap up this on the other side. Uh, so here's a little promo about uh, the show that we're going to be doing on uh, Wednesday night. Here it is. In a statement released today, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis confirmed that her 80-year-old aunt, Miss... Hmm. So that's all they gave us. That's the teaser. Yeah. The entire cast is going to be here on Wednesday night at eight o'clock our time. Oh, Tony, Jerry, come back and join us if sure. you're able to. Oh, good. We'd love to have you here. Tony, you are gonna? Are you gonna? Because oh, they feel yeah. that both of you could add so much to this story, and we're oh. going to hear from the artist's point of view. Um, Grace Garden, uh, Great Gardens. I was lucky enough to see uh, on Broadway uh, with the incredible Christine Ebersole. Uh, and I also saw Betty Buckley and Rachel York. Yeah, yeah. they were uh, great. In, in the Hamptons of Shane all. Shane Hopper? Yes. Wow. Um, I want to ask each of you, um, have you had the experience of seeing this production? Uh, and if so, what, Jerry, what is it like to <laughs> see other actors play you? Uh, you have been immortalized not only on stage, but in song. What is that experience like for you? Then, Tony, I'd like to get your uh, take on this, and then we're going to wrap everything up. Oh. I'll start with you, Jerry. As far as the musical is concerned, I saw the reading of it at the Guggenheim Museum. There was nobody in costume. I was on it. I'm still on it. Matt Kavanaugh, well, I wanted to jump his bones and stuff, so. but he was one of those guys. I was on it, okay? You can't get to Matt Kavanaugh right now. But uh, he, he was wonderful, and I was honored. And Mrs. Bellini, Richard, Tony, all the years of being alone in that mansion with just me and some cats, they saw at the very venue in which is being seen and loved and appreciated. It's a, that's pretty full circle, you know? And yeah. I'm, often I, when I'm in Times Square, when I'm, it was on the show, it was on, I'd look up at the marquee and say, Mrs. Bill, you made it, you know, you finally made it to where you wanted to be. The very venue mm -hmm. of song and dance that you were denied, well, it's no longer denied. Everybody loves you. So it was, a, I loved it. It was, of course, it's Sentimental Journey. You know, you know that song? Sentimental Journey. Anyway, I can't sing it. That's, I loved it, Richard, Tony. It was, uh, it's an honor. God bless that. And uh, Tony, your thoughts, uh, seeing, I mean, you've seen various incarnations, including the HBO film. Did Tony freeze? I yes. think, uh, well, hopefully he's going to come back. Tony, if you can hear us. There we are. Uh, there you are. You froze for a moment. Yeah, we did. That was weird. That was weird. Yeah, I love that Jerry said that because Mrs. Bionidi always wanted the movie to be a musical. And it was. I mean, that's what's that's what's so amazing about it. I couldn't I didn't see the Broadway. Unfortunately, I was going to and something happened. I don't know what I've seen. Christine Ebersole perform it, though. I did see uh, Rachel York and Betty Buckley and Rachel York. Oh, yeah. me away. I love her. I love her. Amazing. She was oh, fantastic. So, yeah. Jesus. yeah. Well, I can't believe it. This hour flew. I've got a thousand yeah. more questions I want to ask. And uh, uh, so but. 
I'm gonna give each of you a chance to have your final word. I'm gonna give my final word and then Tony, I'll turn it over to you. And Jerry, you'll have the final word today. And uh, don't worry about how to end the show. As soon as you say goodbye, the credits will roll. I wanna thank everybody who tuned in. Dell Shores, again, thank you. Anytime you've got a suggestion for anything, throw them my way, because if there is half as much fun as the last hour that I just had, uh, mm-hmm. then uh, every day will be a birthday for me. So thank you, uh, Dell, for making this happen. Uh, and thank you, Tony and Jerry, for your honesty and committing to this project and keeping Edie and Mrs. Beale alive. Uh, it's important. I mean, the thing that I come away with today is um, the humanity of who these women are and were and are because they are very much with us. They have never left and they never will. Um, as I was researching also, you know, Edie, um, she lived uh, to be 84. Uh, she went down to Florida and lived there. Uh, her life went beyond this film as well. Uh, This film is only a microcosm of their lives. Uh, They had a rich life before, and thank God, you know, with the musical Grey Gardens that we get a glimpse, uh, even if some of it was fictionalized, of what their lives were like prior to that. And we get a chance to see that their lives will continue to go on uh, through this book, through the films, through the musicals. And like I said, uh, there's a new musical. It's gonna be in LA. Uh, February 27th. Uh, it's one night only. Uh, everyone go and see it. We're going to be celebrating uh, that, the cast, everyone. Hopefully Tony and Jerry will be with us on Wednesday night as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I come away uh, each day, as you all know who follow me, uh, I choose a word each day and I focus on this word. And the word I pulled out this morning was justice. Mm-hmm. And I think about the justice of Jerry, you gave them uh, a life and a meaning that would have been cut off a lot earlier if you would not come into their lives. So God, a higher power, uh, the universe, whatever your own version of it may be, had a you had a mission on this planet. Mm-hmm. And thank God that you were there for them as their protector, as their friend. Uh, and we get a chance to see through this, again, incredible book, the humanity of who these people are beyond the characters that people only think of them as. These were two very real, living, breathing people. Mm -hmm. I end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. In the opening chapter of the book, Jerry talks about losing contact with the Maisels and that he wished that he had kept in touch. And I realize every day we have the opportunity, hopefully, to keep in touch with those people that matter to us. Take a moment to reach out to that one person that you have not spoken to in a long time. Tell them about today's show. Uh, Then go and order two copies of this book. (laughs) One for yourself and send one to this friend that you're gonna call today Mm -hmm. and let them know how they matter in your life, even right on the inside of the book, how much they matter so that they've always got this as a keepsake. Uh, I have a dear friend, he says, we're all in the same storm, but we're in different size boats. And I say, I don't care if you're on a canoe, a rowboat, uh, a yacht, a sailboat, or even pushing a tugboat upstream. It doesn't matter as long as you have a skipper by your side. Oh. On that note, I'm going to leave. And Tony, I'm turning it over to you. Thank you all for being here today. Thank you. Well, thank you, Richard. And thank you, partner, sitting right there. Hey. This guy over here. There you are. Um, thank you so much. This has been wonderful as always. Jerry, you are an inspiration. You know I love you. Um, and thank you for being you. Because you're mm-hmm. always you. And that's the best gift in the world. So thank you, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. Hi, everyone. Tony and Ed, hey, Richard, everybody listening, cherish the people in your life and the life you live. I, I'm going to tell you, I had never thought that this would come full circle. I thought many different venues, but 
to see Mrs. Beale and Edie's life, reach so many others. And the lesson they taught to me was kindness and compassion. It's not everything, but it's most of everything. And it gets you where you need to go and just the human beings about it. We really all do know where it's at. So they they sort of reached the very venue that they sought. And it, there's a lot to say about the human spirit. And uh, I'm not sure I understand it all yet, but I'm trying to. But I, I really wish everybody the best in their lives and treat each other really well, okay? Corn on the cob is on the house. God bless you all. Thank you. Bye.